Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And it is my delight to welcome you to today's conversation on race, work, and opportunity in our Working in America series. Um, at the Economic Opportunities Program, we focus on promising policy strategies and ideas to help low and moderate income Americans connect to and thrive in our changing economy. Um, and in the Working in America series, we discuss a variety of issues affecting the economic fortunes of working Americans and also what are some promising ideas for addressing these issues. Uh, we've been doing this for a little while, so if this is your first time joining us, I would encourage you to go to our website and see some of our previous conversations. You can find them all at as.pn slash working in America. Uh, and I just want to remind everybody that we are um, both live streaming and recording this event, so please do silence your phones. But please do uh, participate in the conversation via Twitter. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, at the Economic Opportunities Program, we've had really a long interest in this issue of um, equity and inclusion. Uh, if we're talking about working with low-income communities and, and trying to help connect them to opportunity, um, we are talking about predominantly working with people of color. Um, people of color are disproportionately represented among low-income and low-wealth households in America. So as we think about how to move people out of poverty and connect out of poverty and connect them to opportunity, um, we are disproportionately talking about people of color. Over the summer, we had a Working in America conversation um, about widening class divides. We had a conversation with Richard Reeves about his book, Dream, Dream Hoarders. There's overlap between the conversations about class and about race, but they're also really different conversations. Um, uh, at, in the Economic Opportunities Program and the work that we do, we've um, long been concerned about connecting people to work and giving them opportunities to build skills and acquire education. And yet, we see that uh, 
holding education levels constant, uh, black Americans are almost twice as likely to be unemployed as white Americans, and they earn less. Um, so the issues of, of, of race and class are not exactly the same. Um, similarly, we do a lot of work in the Economic Opportunities Program around uh, business ownership as an opportunity strategy. Um, uh, but um, Hispanic and black Americans have levels of net worth that are only one-tenth that of white, uh, white Americans. And in particular, we see that um, business assets are really associated with higher levels of wealth. And yet, um, Hispanic and, and black Americans are much less likely to have business assets. So, so this issue of, of, of um, race cuts across all of the work that we do at the Economic Opportunities Program, trying to connect people to opportunity, both through work and through business ownership. I really want to thank very much the funders of the, of the Working in America series for their support uh, for this event in particular. I, I want to recognize Shauna Scofrey with the Cerdner Foundation, who's, who's here with us today and, and has really been part of a conversation we've been having around this uh, for quite some time. Um, but I also want to recognize our, our funders at the Ford Foundation, at the Prudential Foundation, at the Cerdner, and at the Walmart Foundation, all of whom were very enthusiastic about this particular topic and, and really had a, a lot to contribute as we were thinking about how to shape uh, this conversation. And I also want to note that we are very grateful to the uh, JPB found Foundation for contributing to this event through their support of the Forum for Community Solutions, which is our partner in today's event. And with that, I want to introduce my uh, very esteemed and uh, colleague and great friend, Steve Patrick, who is the director of the Forum for Community Solutions. Thank you. Uh, you should hear what she calls me in staff meetings. <laughs> no. Uh, thank you, Maureen. It's a huge privilege to be in partnership on this and to constantly swim in your wake as a leader here at the Institute who uh, reminds of, us of the importance of equity and opportunity every single day. So thanks. Um, just really quickly, I am Steve Patrick. Uh, I do lead something called the Forum for Community Solutions here. So all of our work is really grounded in community, uh, and we focus a lot on low-income youth and young adults through something called the Opportunity Youth Fund, where we fund communities to come together to create essentially second-chance pathways that lead to gainful employment, a family-sustaining wage for the youth and young adults in our country who, frankly, never really had a first chance and definitely deserve a second chance at a career. Uh, so that's a deep part of our work. Um, as Maureen mentioned, a big part of our work uh, in terms of supporting community-led change is supported by the JPB Foundation, so I want to also give JPB a shout-out for this um, sponsorship for this event and also for helping us work collaboratively with the Center for Community Change on their incredible work trying to address mobility and opportunity in America. Um, and just lastly, uh, as it relates to our work, this conversation couldn't be more timely. I just came back from New Orleans. We actually fund three projects in New Orleans, um, and we, we often use a targeted universalism approach to, to use John Powell's very important language and frame about the work. Uh, for years, I worked at the Gates Foundation, where I wasn't allowed to implement targeted universalism, just to out myself. Turn the cameras off for a second. No. Um, <laughs> But really, that means uh, the rising tide all boats approach uh, does not uh, lead to equity and opportunity when you look at it through an equity lens. So our work in New Orleans has often been focused in particular on boys and young men of color 
having access to opportunity. And in New Orleans, one of the things we celebrated was African-American male unemployment dropped from 52% to 46% in New Orleans. So that's great. And it's 46 frickin' percent. So there's structural barriers that I know our panelists are going to get to here uh, that are really important to overcome. And we witnessed that in New Orleans, much further to go than just a, a drop from 52 to 46 percent. And it's also timely in the context of our country. So, um, uh, you know, I think we're all trying to make sense of a legacy that is now really hitting us in the forehead of sort of essentially white supremacy for no, no better way to name it, um, a legacy uh, of an economic system that was built on the backs of, quote unquote, free labor. Um, and you know, I, I know many of you have probably been reading the ta Coates pieces that have come out. And it's been really helpful to me uh, to just understand that context. His latest piece in The Atlantic about the whitest White House really challenges us around this notion of a white working class and how we label and name things that create difference, that actually create structures, that actually create greater inequity. And I really feel like this is the time to sort of bring these conversations to the forefront, not only at the Aspen Institute, but across the country, so that we can um, get to greater truth and, in fact, reconciliation and equity and justice for all. So I think this, this conversation fits with that frame, and it's a tremendous opportunity. So thanks for being here. Thank you for Maureen for letting us be a part of it. And I can't wait to hear the panel. So now I will shut up. Maureen, please come on back up and get us started. Great. Thanks, Steve. Um, and I want to invite the, the panel now to come um, come on up. And I'm going to briefly introduce the, the panel to you. I also do want to mention, as they're taking their seats, um, there are a variety of materials on the materials table just outside. If you didn't see them um, on your way in, please do take a look on your way out. There's a number of materials from all of the, all of the speakers, actually, which is really terrific. Um, there's a flyer about um, a book, uh, Dorian Warren's new book, which is, which is great. Um, uh, we have also a report from uh, the New Jersey Institute of Social Justice. I'm doing my little modeling here. Uh, some information about the diversity certificate program at Carolina's Health System. Uh, some information around um, black worker centers and the National Black Worker Center. And uh, let's see, there's the, the center. Uh, Center for Employment Equity. Okay, I, I think I've modeled everybody's materials, but really, it's terrific information. So please do um, please do take a look. Okay, so now we've come to the point where I see if I can get everybody's name correct. <laughs> it's a, a test uh, uh, this time. So I'm just briefly going to uh, put names to faces, um, starting from um, my far left uh, to, to your far right. Um, uh, you have bios in your materials. Please do take a look. We have just an amazing panel for you today. Um, so for my far left is um, Tanya Wallace-Goborn, Executive Director of the National Black Worker Center Project. Um, next to Tanya is um, uh, Thomas, Thomas, uh, Don Thomas Govich Devi. I knew I was going to mess this one up. Uh, <laughs> professor of Sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, next to Don is uh, Ryan Haygood, President and CEO of the New Jersey Institute of Social Justice. Uh, next to Ryan is 
Uh, Deborah Pluchet-Moore, System Chief of Staff and Executive Vice President of the Carolinas Health System. And I'm very happy to turn it over to Dorian Warren, President for the Center for Community Change Action and Vice President at the Center for Community Change, and also a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and co-chair of the Economic Security Project. Phew! <laughs> and author of The Hidden Rules of Race, who will be moderating today's discussion. Thank you so much, Dorian. Thank you, Maureen. Take it away. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here with this esteemed panel. And um, I want to thank Steve Patrick and Maureen Conway for bringing us all together and inviting me back and inviting some of us back. just want to say three quick things and get our panel talking. So first, just a little context. As Steve and Maureen already mentioned, what we know since the, 1970s, since the 1970s, black unemployment has been roughly twice that of white unemployment. And that's just a historic pattern that exists till today. We also know there continues to be a racial wage gap. So when blacks and whites do the same work, even at the same employer, right, black workers and especially black women make less than their white counterparts. It's 2017. So the question is, why is this still the norm in 2017? Secondly, I think we'll explore in many ways what are the rules and public policies that either shape outcomes of inclusion or exclusion and discrimination. Um, and so we want to unpack that just a bit. As we think about what are the ways to change those rules and policies, those public rules and public policies. And then last but not least, I think we'll have a conversation about the norms and practices of employers specifically. <laughs> we can't let employers off the hook, right? There's, there's public policy and then there are employer norms and practices. And tying all of this together is a focus on race and class. And so Steve Patrick said it already. He mm -hmm. used the white supremacy word, so I feel like I can use it now. Um, thanks, Steve. So how do we think about white supremacy, right? And labor market exclusion and where those two things meet. Um, to shape opportunities and outcomes. And we'll leave you not depressed, but inspired on what we can do going forward, I promise. But let's tackle the problem first. And I want to start with Don, because um, he's written this great book, Documenting Desegregation. I rely on it and have for years now. He is one of the leading scholars in the country on helping us understand occupational segregation by both race and gender. So Don, I want to start with you and ask you simply to tell us your, about your research, what are the main findings and what are some of the surprising findings? And of course, answer that question in three minutes or less. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but the laugh took up part of my three minutes. <laughs> so um, uh, the, uh, these are sort of dark times, right? They're dark times right now. And then if, if we look at what kinds of racial progress there's, there has been in, in employment, um, for most indicators, the answer is none since about 1980, right? And um, in some ways, that's a downer. It gets you to, it makes a white supremacy lens um, seem a reasonable lens. Um, my work um, goes back a little bit further historically. And I think if you do that, the first lesson you learn is that change happens rapidly when it happens. And change happens because there's external pressure on firms, right? So public policy, something like the Civil Rights Act, or the creation of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, these are powerful um, uh, not simply because they're enacted, but because they change firm behavior. Right? Um, but the power doesn't um, go on forever. And when the political pressure 
either on the government or on the firms, stops, so did progress. Right? So part of my answer, which is a little bit um, um, counter to the kind of the way you framed things, Dorian, is that policy is really only the initial step. Mm -hmm. If policy is not transmitted um, to change in behavior at the firm level, nothing's going to happen. Um, or things will stop eventually. Um, so I think that's the, the key thing um, that I'd like people to take away at, at this point. So pivoting from your point there about firms, I want to come to Deborah then, because you work at one of the nation's largest, most comprehensive healthcare organizations, Carolina's healthcare system. It's also community owned. It is. So hmm. talk to us about how when the pressures, the external pressure stops, what do firm at the firm level what is your take, what is your orientation towards race and work and opportunity inside of your firm? So I've long been a champion advocate, um, educator in the area of diversity and inclusion. Um, because my work was recognized in the area of where I felt most disciplined, I was recruited into healthcare. And uh, I've been in healthcare for 20 years. And every day, I try to make an impact. Uh, because if you just look at our statistics, healthcare, most healthcare organizations are 80% women. Mm -hmm. And 80% of healthcare organizations are run by men. So uh, if you take the opportunity to understand who goes into our workforce and how they are promoted, what we will find is um, for people of color, sometimes there is a lack of a social network mm -hmm. uh, that will help you uh, aspire um, throughout your career to those roles that you find interesting and that you feel that you could be a middle class wage earner. So we do have entry level positions and most employer, I don't know of an employer that pays minimum wage. So if we just went around our country and said, um, you know, how much are you paying your lowest paid employer, and we did that as an average, it would be $11. But when we have a policy that says it's $7.25, that is mostly impacted by women and people of color as you were trying to fill that gap of what is minimum wage and what we actually pay. So as an employer, um, we have been on a journey to get to $15. Mm. It's really $17.50 that will make the difference. Mm -hmm. That will provide <laughs> access to the middle class and mobility. Mm. Not 15, 1750. Mm -hmm. So the gap of getting there um, is a journey every single day, but the impact is women and people of color. Mm -hmm. So you have the pay structure as a barrier then the social network of people communicating, how do you move up in the organization? So um, as an African-American executive, I have so many people that say, I want this other job, how do I get it? And uh, I'm not really not the right person to come to, I'm one of the right people, but it's the person in the job that you want, that you talk to and say, how did you get there? And so for people of color, not women, because we are 80% women, uh, our 
uh, white work workforce will network other white employees. It is the African American, the Latino, and um, other people of color that have to work harder for the network. So you have the pay structure, you have the internal social network, and then education is uh, still, especially in healthcare, an access point or a barrier. Mm -hmm. So what we have found is we took jobs for uh, teammates make $35,000 and below and said, how can we get this group of people to the middle class, $65,000. We find five jobs. They need a two-year degree. Barrier to academic access, access is sometimes childcare. It is sometimes transportation. It is sometimes, uh, do we have a gap in learning abilities? So if we could get those teammates earning $35,000, like a certified nurse assistant, in two years she could be an RN or he, moving from 35000 to 65000 What is the structural infrastructure we could put together as an employer to advance, develop, and accelerate economic mobility and opportunity within our current workforce? It's doable, mm -hmm. but it's not just diversity and inclusion lens. I was saying earlier to the panel, it's when you put in the lens of economic opportunity and mobility, then it makes the employer say, what are our opportunities? This is our workforce, how do we develop it? So, um, thank you, Deborah, so much there. And she did at least two things there, um, introducing gender into the conversation so it could be truly intersectional, so appreciate yes, that. Okay. And you just raised the bar. There's been this fight for 15 movement the last few years, right? She just raised the bar to 1750 as an employer. <laughs> so thank you for that, too. We need to get there. We need to get yeah, there. Um, so the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice sounds like an evil, really do-bad organization. <laughs> uh, Ryan, tell us the mission, sure. the founding of it, sure. and why um, employment disparities by race are important to sure. what you do. So Dorian, thanks for the introduction, and thanks to the Aspen Institute for hosting this, I think, really critical conversation at an important time. In, in our history, I lead the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. We are a legal advocacy organization, and our mission really is to identify load-bearing walls of structural and racial inequality that, if toppled, will open up opportunities for urban residents and residents of color more broadly. And we do work in three sort of pillar areas. Our work is focused around opportunity. This includes access to jobs. Uh, credit and affordable and quality housing. The second is around criminal justice reform. And the third pillar is around expanding democracy. Hmm. And we do work in New Jersey's urban centers with an eye toward realizing that the experience is very, very shared across urban centers in, uh, in, in this country. And this conversation is really important to me and to the work that we do because this is really a conversation at least uh, 50 years in the making. So folks know that 50 years ago, uh, Dr. King gave uh, one of his most famous, famous and last speeches, the Other America speech, right? And in this speech, mm -hmm. he talked about how this country is really divided into two Americas. He said, in one America, young people grow up in what he described as the sunlight of opportunity. Uh, but in the other America, he said that young people are perishing on a lonely island in a vast mm -hmm. ocean of material prosperity. And I think 50 years later, many, many, many cities across the country uh, exemplify that to Americas. Our offices housed in the mighty 
city of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, Newark is a mighty city uh, with incredible development happening now in the downtown. Um, billions of dollars of construction uh, completed, underway, or in the pipeline. Uh, in the city of Newark, the average person who works earns more than $40,000 a year. Uh, and though the city is two-thirds people of color, 60% uh, of those who work in the city of Newark are white. And this is really part of a broader, uh, more troubling trend, which is to say that the percentage of local residents who work in the city of Newark is strikingly low. So in the city of Newark, local residents hold 18% of all jobs. 18%, um, I see folks reacting in the, in the audience. And in this respect, Newark is really an outlier. In the city of Baltimore, local residents hold 33% of, of jobs in the city. In the city of New Orleans, local residents hold 45% of jobs in the city. But in Newark, uh, local residents hold just 18% of the jobs. And there's interesting reactions to that mm -hmm. number. And if folks get honest, sometimes they think, well, the reason why the number is so low is because local residents either don't want to work or are unqualified to work. And so we uh, authored a report, my colleague Demel Zabair, who leads our economic justice work, authored a really powerful report which is available to folks here. And she looked at who works in the city, so what the qualifications are, and then who doesn't work. And that's how we happened upon this 18% number. But what we found was very fascinating. One is that local residents in Newark have a higher labor force participation rate, not only than New Jersey, but higher than the national average, indicating a willingness to work in the city. Uh, and for the majority of those local residents who work, uh, local residents who work, they travel more than an hour to and from uh, their places of employment. A third piece we realize is that you often hear people say, well, the reason the number is so low is because a good number of local residents in just fill in the blank city uh, have criminal convictions. What we found is that local residents in Newark have about the same uh, incidence of uh, criminal convictions as most other cities indeed across the country. And then we thought, well, maybe it's because the majority of those who work in the city of Newark have college degrees. And to Deborah's point, maybe it is that educational access is a challenge for local residents. And I won't say that it isn't, because indeed it is. But in the city of Newark, only one third of those who work in the city have a college degree. And that's consistent with the national trend. And so what we learned, and this is not revelation knowledge to the expert panelists here or the experts in the room who joined us today, is that the reason why the percentage of local residents who work in the city of Newark is so low. The reason why we've made very little progress, to, to Don's point, in the last 50 years is because there really is a system that has been designed to produce the kind of results we see. And I'll just close very quickly by saying, even the way we approach a conversation about employment is colored by race, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. So when we approach a conversation about race, for example, in the Rust Belt, in, uh, city, in, in states like Pennsylvania, or West Virginia or Ohio, people there are unemployed, we say, because the industry that they were formerly employed in has dried up. It presupposes a desire to work. And the reason that folks are unemployed is because the thing they did no longer exists. In those communities, we don't dig into incidences of criminal convictions <laughs> or college attainment right. or uh, high rates of teenage pregnancy or drug use. But when we approach conversations about unemployment or employment in our cities, we do this interesting thing. One is that we, we create an exacting standard for employment. 
we say employment in the future is going very specialized. And to compete for employment in the future, you will need to have significant degrees and expertise and a skill set. And then we say we look at the hardest to employ person in fill in the blank city, and we say, well, this person is struggling for a host of challenges. And then we do this very interesting thing, which I think is a function of race. We make employment seem impossible in our urban centers. But the reality is that in cities like Newark, as cities in DC and cities across the country, there is a spectrum of employable folks. There are folks in the city of Newark who right now are ready to work and if connected to an opportunity to work could start tomorrow. There are also folks on the other end of the spectrum for whom significant workforce training would be necessary. But I think even that conversation around the spectrum of employability is absent when we talk about employment in many of our urban centers. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. You, uh, sure. you packed a lot in there. Um, I'm going to come back to that 18% number in a, sure. in a few minutes. But Tanya, last but not least, can you tell us about the National Black Workers Center project? Tell us what a worker center is. Tell us why the need for a black worker center, both locally around the country. I know you work with many around the country, Chicago, LA, uh, other places. And then tell us about the National Black Worker Center project. Sure. So I, I think that what you when you're talking about just separating the two, that, that's really important. So when you think about a traditional worker center um, in our country, they were established to, to really help um, communities of, of migrants that came to this country really to have access to, to, to jobs, to really to battle um, discrimination against um, new, new people coming into the country. They were for folks who didn't have access to a labor union. They were folks who didn't have access to, to labor laws in this country. And so the typical types of services that you would see from a worker center would be to prevent wage theft, to um, provide legal representation, um, to provide courses and classes on English as a second language, things like that. But in terms of black worker centers, we are a little bit different. The first worker center in our network um, was formed in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and it was formed to address um, the issue of businesses from the north moving to the south to escape unions. Mm -hmm. And so out of that arose, it didn't arise, it was already in existence, but out of that, <laughs> right, it came a need to really deal with the, the um, inequity of treatment between blacks and, and white workers. And so at the, the National Black Worker Center Project, we, in our network, we don't necessarily provide individual services. We don't think that that is the right course of action for us. We look at building change in, in for the black community. And so we don't offer individual services. We have campaigns. We organize for power, and we seek to bring broad community uplift. Um, our members are black people. So they are unemployed, underemployed. They are white collar, blue collar. They are college educated. They are business owners. They are union members and they are folks that don't have unions. Our workers deal with racism on the job, plain and simple. And so one of the things that, that we see is that racism is and discrimination is predatory. You can't um, assimilate your way out of it. You can't educate your way out of it. It is predatory. And until we hold predators accountable, we won't be able to defuse the situation. And so that's how black worker centers see um, 
our, our work as being different. We don't see it as being individual. We see it as being collective. And we feel that in this country in particular, there is unfinished business that needs to be done in regards to racism. And if we are to lift up all of the workers in this country, we most definitely have to lift up black workers. And so that's why we have black worker centers. Um, there are eight centers in our network. I mentioned earlier the first one came about in 1985 in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. We are in Washington, D.C. We're in Baltimore and L.A. and the Bay Area and Chicago. Um, and, and we're growing. Um, the National Center came about about two years ago after a series of convenings of regional and local work, worker centers. And we have come about to, to build, um, to expand our footprint, to allow us to engage in advocacy on a national level, and to really provide um, support for the worker centers that we currently have in existence. Great, thank you. Wow. Um, and you mentioned, Tanya, towards the end of your comments, the unfinished business. So I want to turn to that and unpack what are some of the causes of this unfinished business and give Don you a, a chance to expand on what, where you started. Help us understand what are the causes around racial disparities in employment, whether it's exclusion or occupational segregation. What does your data tell us are the main causes? How have they maybe changed over time? Um, so just help us think through that. So how, how should we understand contemporary disparities, the unfinished business Tanya talked about. Right. So I think you're absolutely right. There's an unfinished business. And places like Rocky Mountain in particular are really kind of interesting um, to think about. And I'll, hopefully I'll get back to that. So in, uh, when we talk about like a white racial project or white privilege, it sort of makes things static in time. Mm -hmm. Right, but that's not how privilege works. Um, so if if I'm privileged and then I lose my privilege, I might actually come up with a different rule of the game. Mm -hmm. Right, and we're gonna, and so things get reinscribed um, in different ways. And so in that sense, it's a moving target. Right. So if we go back um, to the civil rights movement and this kind of pre mid '60s era, right, um, racial exclusion was so totally institutionalized it did not have to be, um, uh, it was just not a problem at the level of workplaces, right? Uh, many workplaces were either all white or all male, and when they were integrated, the segregation was total, right? Um, there was no, so if you go back to the early, to the early 60s, like managers are 97% white men in this country, right? Um, so in that sense, there's almost no politics of this. It's just in the infrastructure of everyday life, right? Now, the Civil Rights Movement changed that. And the Civil Rights Movement also gave birth to the women's movement, which also changed that, right? And so one of the things that we see is in that early period, this is what I was referring to about rapid change before 1980, mm -hmm. right? We see gender and racial wage gaps dropping. Uh, we don't see a big change in unemployment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, African Americans in particular still have to apply for more jobs to get one, but they were. Right? Um, and we see segregation in these workplaces drop fairly rapidly from a very high level. Right? That's when I was saying before about things getting stalling in 1980, they stalled. Right? So, but that doesn't mean that there's no change anymore. Right? So if you, so now I'm going to be a little nerdy professor, right? Um, so if you have something that's 
going down over time segregation or a wage gap that's going down over time and it goes flat like this, right? That doesn't mean there's no change anymore. It means the change is now local. It means that there are some workplaces that are getting worse mm. and some workplaces that are getting better. Absolutely. Right? And it also means your target for public policy has to change. So the civil rights movement, the target for public policy is the government, the federal government. Mm -hmm. right? um, and it's a point of intervention for this kind of totally institutionalized um, inequality that's everywhere. Now, the politics has to become local. Right? And so Rocky Mount, for example, um, in our work, is one of the labor markets where racial inequality is extraordinarily high. Right? Um, even though Raleigh and Charlotte, an hour and three hours away, are not. Right? So the politics of this uh, become local. Um, and the, like worker centers have always known this, that the politics are local. Um, um, so I think, so that's part of the story I'd like you to think about. Um, that's a spatial story, but one could talk about a firm story. So one could go to Newark, figure who are the 20 uh, biggest, most important employers. You could think of employment important here as most workers employed or most living wage jobs. But you could also think of those employers as the leaders of the community, the ones who set the standard for everybody else, right? So you can ask those 20, about those 20 employers in Newark, um, how do they rank relative to each other in the hiring of black mm -hmm. labor, right? Mm -hmm. Those same employers probably exist elsewhere, mm -hmm. like in Hartford, mm -hmm. right, or other cities. Um, is their behavior just as bad in Hartford as, as it is in Newark, mm -hmm. right? So I think the target has to change, right? It's about the politics of particular communities and places. And within communities, it's got to be the politics of particular firms. Um, and so I, for me, that's where the action is right now. That's so insightful and helpful. And I'm glad you did the nerdy professor thing with us. Um, <laughs> and I want to pivot from that, because one, one thing I got from what you just said, Don, is that local context matters. So Tanya, can you tell us, across the eight black worker centers you work with, what are you hearing from workers themselves about the major challenges and barriers? And what are the similarities and differences, whether it's the Bay Area or Baltimore? Mm -hmm. so, so one of the things I could say that we're hearing consistently um, across our network is that we have two main challenges. The first one, <clears throat> excuse me, is the impact of racism. And then the second is the network and the framework that completely undermines black people. And so I want to talk a little bit about what that means. And so we see them as challenges. And the first challenge would be the, the definition of the American worker. And so when you traditionally think about the American worker, you don't think about the black worker. Black workers are not American workers. And so why is that? One is that <clears throat> we have these narratives that say that discrimination isn't really against black workers, right? It's not systematic. They're just a few bad apples, a few bad corporations or companies, right, or employers. The other is that, as we've heard on the panel, right, that, that blacks aren't skilled or they're uneducated or that they don't want to work. The second narrative is civil versus uncivilized. Blacks don't, they're lazy. Blacks aren't drug free. Blacks aren't trying hard enough to get a job. 
But we realize that, that that's just not true. And even in progressive circles, we see it as well. We call it in, at the Black Work Center, black ice. And so we're all familiar with black ice, right? People trying to avoid the black ice. You can't see the black ice. And the conversation that we find ourselves in frequently is, you can talk about immigrant rights. You can talk about Latino and Asian worker rights. But when we talk about black worker rights, it's black ice, right? People slip, they slide, they trip, they fall over it. And we're made to feel uncomfortable, right? And for a long time, the, the pushback that we received is it's not about race, it's about class, mm-hmm. right? And so, so that is something that, that's very difficult for us. It makes us hard, it makes it harder for us to work in coalition with other organizations. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wanted to just call out that it's not just, um, you know, the right or anything like that. It's, it's also in our, within our progressive community, right, that we have these challenges. So one of the things that we are doing to change those narratives, though, is this video series called Working While Black. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we feel in terms of organizing is that first there must be awareness before there is action. And so through our video series, we are working to make the invisible visible, asking people to talk about their experiences, good, bad, or indifferent, of when they first recognized or realized that they were a black person working. And so it's it's very interesting um, to hear these stories. And one of the things that we are seeing is that through telling these stories, community is being built. Mm Frequently, people feel that people have felt like it was only happening to me. And in this era, right, when we've had a black president, something must be wrong with me that I am still dealing with discrimination, racism. What we're also seeing with our younger community is that they don't know what to call it, right? Because they haven't been exposed to the history, the legacy of discrimination and racism that we are. So they question and they internalize it and personalize and say, I must be doing something wrong. And it's through telling these stories that you realize that it's happening to us collectively. And we hope that we will be able to really shore up and build our base so that we can take action. So Tanya, you uh, beat me to the punch on the solutions, but we'll come back to it. I do know I'm never going to think of black ice in the same way, so thank you very much. Um, staying on the theme of local context, so Ryan, help us understand, you, the number you mentioned to us is still in my head, so eight, only 18% of local residents are in jobs in Newark. Um, I want you to talk to us a bit about what has changed in the last 50 years, because you started with Dr. King's speech in Newark. So. <laughs> Was it 18% 50 years ago? And mm-hmm. what's changed in terms of the barriers to employment in Newark over the last 50 years for black people? Yeah, Dorian, that's a great question. I mean, one of the more, more disheartening things to realize is that very little has changed, frankly, in those numbers in the last 50 years. I think in part because we have continued to try to uh, make better a system that really is entirely broken uh, around, to Tommy's point, around empowering black Uh, employees and people of color more broadly. And so what we sought to do in Newark is really think about, okay, so which city across the country is doing really powerful work in connecting local residents to work? And this gets to the opportunity frame that I know Dorian Dorian, really loves, and I I do too, because I think it's important both to recognize the challenges, but also to think through creative solutions to face down those challenges. And I think in this particular moment, uh, to be sure, there is lots of concern about what's happening nationally mm-hmm. for very good reasons. But I also think this, that means that this really is a local moment. Yeah. 
And the reality is that change has always, always happened from the ground up in our communities, not from Washington, D.C. or some other place down. And so about two years ago in Newark, we began to do a fair amount of research to understand who does local hiring well. We uh, formed partnerships with folks in Baltimore, New Orleans, uh, Detroit, San Francisco, Hartford. And we learned a number of things about how people are doing local hiring there, and what kinds of initiatives are being built. And what we really set out to do is to build a system that would intentionally connect local residents to work, really beginning with the employment opportunity. So I think if you poll local residents in Newark and ask them, that's probably true, frankly, of many cities across the country. If you, if you poll <laughs> urban residents and ask them, hey, have you ever had any workforce training in any particular discipline or industry? I think they probably would say, yes, this has been my experience to be sure in New Jersey. In fact, I, I was trained, I received several certifications, maybe even got a graduation. Uh, but on the other side of the training, there was no employment opportunity. And employers have been notorious about providing support and grants. Foundations have been notorious about providing support for, for training in some industry with no employment opportunity on the other side. So we work closely with the mayor, uh, Raz Baraka. Uh, one of our key partners is the Newark Alliance. The Newark Alliance uh, is made up of several of the major corporations in downtown Newark, the Anchor Institution Corporations. We worked with, we're working with Rutgers University, RWJ Barnabas Health, a lot of um, grassroots community organizations, the faith community, various civic organizations. We created a very large table and we set out to create a framework that begins with the employment opportunity. So the employers who participate in what has become known as Newark 2020, uh, the goal is to connect 2020 local residents to work by 2020, and that number is meaningful because that would reduce the unemployment gap between Newark, which is one of the poorest cities in America, mm -hmm. and New Jersey, which every year is the wealthiest state in the country, to cut that in half by 2020. And the way this proceeds, very quickly is we begin with the employment opportunity. So the employers who participate identify jobs they have now and that they're projected to have over the next now three years. And these are meaningful jobs. This is a range of jobs, entry-level jobs for those that require a college degree. Then proceeding from the left, we then identify the skills that one would need to compete for those jobs. Then we identify who does workforce training to those specific skills for the available jobs. And finally, we identify people in the community who are close to work ready, who, if they need to be trained, could be connected to skills for the available jobs. And we've been thinking about this as a very local initiative. You could, my wife, uh, very quickly, is uh, the principal of a K-8 school. It's one of the uh, most impoverished areas in the city of Newark. And she said that about a third of her students turn over every year, which is particularly devastating in those early grades. There's no continuity in first, second, and third grade, which, as folks know, is foundational, those are foundational years. But if we focused this initiative on an area around the school, we could literally stabilize whole families and the whole community. And so Newark 2020, it's a, it's, it is an initiative that has buy-in, but our, part of our role is to provide research and writing, but also to push employers. Because I'll close with that, I hear, I hear this um, agreement. The reality is that it requires a significant culture shift for the participating employers. Because for a host of reasons, and I'll proceed with the more charitable ones, it's just a new thing to hire local residents. Some of the employers have been in Newark from almost from its founding. It's one of the oldest cities in the country and have never been very good 
about hiring local residents. And so there is a push needed to make this initiative happen. But this is an example of what we're doing on the local yeah, yeah, level. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming to you next, Deborah. Okay. Uh, he set you up nicely, right? Because yeah. we're going to stay Did on the, the theme. You were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but on the theme of local context, we're going to go from Newark to North Carolina, because you're based in Charlotte, but you, you're in the Carolinas. We're in the region. And yeah. Ryan was just talking about the role of employers. And I know that, th that there has been culture shifts that you have helped to lead. And I want you to talk a little bit about what you found in terms of some internal research between CNAs and RNs. Absolutely, I'll do that. So, okay, I'm setting you but, up, so just go, but, go. Uh, there's <laughs> another, let, let me respond here. Mm -hmm. yep. Local is critical, mm -hmm. especially in healthcare. So healthcare is local. But if you look at the seed of the fruit, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for many of us in many of our large cities, 75 years ago, healthcare was segregated. Mm. There was a black hospital. Mm -hmm. There were black physicians yeah. that could only work yeah. at the black hospital. So mm -hmm. when that is the seed of the fruit, yeah. <laughs> you have to talk about the progression over the next 75 years where we now have mm. one healthcare system. Mm. 75 years sounds like a long time to many of us. It is a very short yeah. period of time culturally. Mm. So culturally, when the seed mm -hmm. is segregated, schools, healthcare, we move to integration. There is conscious and unconscious bias that is inside of how we do our work mm. because of the seed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm. So um, if you look at um, how we trained physicians, 75 years ago. They went to historically black medical schools and then worked their way into the white majority healthcare systems. So healthcare has been doing its work over the last 75 years. It takes each one of our 60,000 teammates to take care of a patient. So no one person takes care of a patient because you've got to welcome transport, lab, fees, the clinical responsibility. We are a small community and a remarkable access point if you can get in. Mm -hmm. So if I look at the population in Charlotte, we're 30% African American. At Carolina's healthcare system, the African American population is 22%. And if I look at entry level positions, their rate of engagement, productivity, and interest is higher than our majority white workforce. So engaged in the work. But their tenure is less. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about those economic mobility barriers. It is transportation. It is wage, living from paycheck to paycheck. It is one breakdown of the car, the freezer, or the refrigerator. So, you know, this is systemic that uh, we have a group of people who have more access to wealth, mm -hmm. more access to jobs that create more wealth, and people who have less than. Mm -hmm. As this gap grows over time, because we are not seeing the race financial uh, profile finding any uh, connectivity between the white and the African-American group. It keeps getting larger. And in these times, probably, uh, it could probably accel accelerate that 
if there is not an intervention, what does this do to our American workforce? You want to make America great again? Provide people with meaningful work, meaningful wages, a sense of belongingness, and ability to be of value. That's what creates participation. That's what creates the great American workforce. So uh, what did I find um, through the lens? Yeah, so I look at data all the time. So you're an academic geek. I used to work in higher ed. I'm a, you know, that's how I prove my case. So I'm a breakthrough, and, and I get it. But as I broke through, I want to open the door and take more people with me. Data is the way I communicate. So um, as I looked at our data, of course, we have uh, more whites that have access to education than we do African Americans, so what outlines how you have access to jobs and what jobs you have and how we value jobs and on the hierarchy who gets paid and who doesn't. Everybody's working, right? Mm -hmm. In our system, everybody's working. Yeah, so even me, highly educated, there's very few jobs I can do in a healthcare system because I'm not qualified, I'm not certified, and I can't do the work. Everyone's working, but we put different values on different jobs. So as I looked at the data, and I you know, just looked at nursing, so our nursing population is 70% white, 20% African American, and other. So we have broken through, if you think of the seed and the fruit and where we started, we're breaking through. However, are we in leadership positions? And it will take intentional intervention to make this work. And we have to work as a community. You know, so I so enjoy the conversations of the Aspen Institute because we have white people leading the conversation which says you're a bridge person and I can talk to you all the time because sometimes people don't want to hear it from me. Yeah. Mm. I'm black eyes. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. So you need that champion and ambassador. So if you're looking at the, uh, how do I get more uh, people of color to be a, a registered nurse, a middle class mm -hmm. job, we have to be absolutely intentional. Mm -hmm. One of the things I saw that, uh, though, in, if I looked at every certified nurse assistant and who gets the network and opportunity to move into the RN role, 85% of those moved were white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that internal social network mm -hmm. that says, come here. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you how to do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, do I do that to people? Absolutely. But I do it to everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I talk to whites. I talk to men. I talk to women. I talk to people of color. I talk to very educated. How do you create access for everyone? And that's the role. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's fear. You think if I you know, say, come on, let's talk about how you get educated and how you get this role, that uh, you will be looked at as um, someone who's intervening and shouldn't. But let me tell you, I grew up, everybody intervened. The neighbor intervened, the minister intervened, the nun intervened, your grandmother intervened. We were a community. And as a community, we valued education and we valued work. 
and somewhere we've lost our way to care for the other, to inform, to build up, to promote. So, a couple you things there. Uh, <laughs> a couple things there. I'm going to let you respond, Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, just to say, we are nonpartisan um, here. However, did I say my, something? No, no, no. I'm just saying. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying. You have I purpose. could have. I was my just wondering. Point is, I? your vision of what to make, how to make America great. You have my vote. That's all. Oh, I okay. Brian, did you want to respond? No, to I, Deborah, I just what Deborah spoke to. I think really is about how investments are made in people. I think that is also a reflection of uh, the way that race uh, functions in this country. And I'm, I think uh, a striking corollary for me is the way in which, so in New Jersey, our governor is Chris Christie. Uh, he's one of the more popular governors in the country. He, uh, he, is, he launched a very effective campaign uh, for those people who are trapped in the opioid crisis. And it is, I think, appropriately called a crisis. But what's been fascinating to me is that that has really been a campaign uh, driven by compassion yeah. and a recognition that these are folks who are addicted to drugs. So it's a public health crisis for which uh, rehabilitation and treatment is required. And so in many precincts in New Jersey and, in fact, across the country, you can go to, if you're addicted to uh, opioids, you can present yourself to a police station. You can bring, even if you have unused drugs and paraphernalia, uh, in exchange for on-the-spot drug treatment. And when I think about investments, I mean, it, it, these are for folks who have found themselves in an addiction crisis. That particular response, I think, speaks to the way in which investments are being made in some communities and the way in which disinvestment has happened in other communities. So Newark is an interesting city. This is the 50th anniversary year of a rebellion that was sparked 50 years ago by law enforcement abuse of a then black, of a black cab driver. And for the last five decades, we've only seen disinvestment in the city and then policies that reinforce that disinvestment and the inequality, and then folks respond to the disinvestment and inequality as if the people there are broken. And I think the, you know, the, the war on drugs in the 1980s and the 1990s when the drug of choice for black folks was crack cocaine is a very good example where the response was not compassion, neither was it about rehabilitation or restoration. So Ryan, on this point, because you started with, uh, you just made reference to the 50 years mm -hmm. um, ago, the riots and the uprising riots, whatever you want to call it, as well as Dr. King's, um, I'm reminded of Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the question I want to pose to the panel. And to give you some time to think about it, I will stall for 30 seconds to say, we're going to open it up to the audience in a few minutes. And if you are, you want to tweet at us, hashtag talkgoodjobs, mm -hmm. um, and we'll take some, some questions, maybe from Twitter. So you started us on the interventions conversation, mm -hmm. Deborah. Um, I'm going to start from Tanya and come this way. Where do we go from here? What are the strategies that you are taking that we should be thinking about to, at to attack, to combat all the causes we've laid out and depressed everybody for the last hour? <laughs> so, so give us some optimism and hope. So what, you know, what are the strategies? What do we do? How do we really break down these barriers and move towards inclusion and equity. Sure. So, so as I mentioned at the Black Worker Center, we, we focus on collective uplift of the black community. And so I think the, the way that I would answer that is to talk about some of the campaigns that we have been, been, been running and, and working with. So um, we, um, 
in the Bay Area, for example, we have a 1400 campaign that we started in 2016. That campaign was to identify and did identify 1,400 either currently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated individuals, and then identify 1,400 jobs within mm. Alameda mm. County and to bargain and ne negotiate with the county so that these folks can be partner with those jobs. And so that was a successful campaign. Um, in 2017, one of the things that we are now working with is the types of jobs that um, we had been talking about are not the types of jobs that are um, formerly incarcerated members are, are receiving, right? So we've got folks with college degrees who are given an orange vest and told to work on the street. And so we really are needing to focus at this um, phase of the campaign on the types of jobs that are sustainable so that people don't end up back into the system. Um, in Chicago, we have a campaign that's a voucher campaign. And if people are familiar with the Section 8 vouchers, it works similar to that. So in the state of Illinois, they currently spend $25,000 on each individual that is incarcerated. Our campaign says that we want to have vouchers that are valued at $15,000, and the vouchers are attached to an individual. And so similar to Section 8, we want to incentivize businesses to employ formerly incarcerated individuals, and to do so, they would get that $15,000 tax incentive. Um, and in New Orleans, we um, have a traffic clinic. And one of the things that's come up that we've heard about from our colleagues on the panel is access to employment. One um, individual um, that's our member's name is Ezell, talked about um, wanting to apply for a job and working in a particular industry where he had other friends, he had networking opportunities there, but didn't have access to it because he didn't have a driver's license. We learned that his driver's license had been suspended because of traffic, to these traffic tickets that he had that currently um, are at that time equal to $23,000 through building a traffic clinic, partnering with Loyola University, with attorneys and judges, we were able to have those fines reduced from $23,000 to $9, $9. Ezell now has a driver's license, he's applied for that job, he's working on his third interview, and we think that that will be successful. With our first traffic clinic, we expected to get between 15 to 25 people. 2,000 people showed up. We now have a waiting list of 25,000 people. And, and it's, although that is a success, it's also a challenge because we don't have the capacity in New Orleans to, to have a clinic for 25,000 people. So we have a waiting list. The last campaign that I want to share um, is a campaign that um, started in LA with the LA Black Worker Center. Um, in Crenshaw, there's a light rail that's being built. Mm -hmm. It's actually going through the city of, um, of mm -hmm. LA. Crenshaw is a historically African-American community. And when we looked at this, um, this development and the work that was taking place, we learned that less than 2% of the people that were employed were African-Americans. And so they started a campaign, right, to get more jobs to, um, more jobs for blacks to work on this light rail that's going through our community. Um, very successful work was being done. This was a cup, this is actually um, the year that Trump was um, elected. Prior to that, we were in conversations um, with the Department of Labor. One of the things that we found was that the EEOC language had to be changed. The language currently was written in 67, the year that I was born, mm -hmm. and, my, and it spoke to hiring minorities, right? But it didn't disaggregate the data. It didn't disaggregate mm -hmm. who those people were. And so that's why we weren't getting hired. So. Um, 
the, the conversation was going well. We were in the process of um, getting that language changed. And then the election went the way that it did. The administration changed. And so that kind of fell apart. But our campaign didn't fall apart. And I really want to speak now to, to local organizing because we decided and have decided as a network that if we aren't going to be able to win strategically at a federal level, then that means that we need to hit the ground at, at the local level. And so just recently, two months ago, LA um, led a coalition that was successful in passing SB 491 through the California Assembly. And what that does is it strengthens anti-discrimination employment language in, in the state of California. So we, we consider that to be um, a success. Another thing that we do is partner with unions. For African Americans, organized labor has been a traditional mechanism to pensions, to health care, to insurance, to being able to um, you know, have built into your contract, if you will, anti-discrimination language. And so we believe that unions need to organize more black people and we support that and we work with them to, to organize um, more blacks. The other thing that we would say is that we are really um, examining the civil rights movement. We feel that the, the issues that we're dealing with today are not new, they're familiar, and they're lessons that can be learned. And so part of that for us means that we have to build our base. Mm -hmm. There can be um, no organizing without base building. Mm -hmm. And base building for us means that there's leadership development, that, that we're looking for individual leaders, but that we say to everyone, we all are leaders. We are all the leaders that we have been searching for and looking for. And what we do is train people to step into and own that leadership so that they can speak and work within their communities. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate especially the local organizing part of <laughs> strategies. Um, Don. So um, I really, the black ice was a new one for me. In sociology, we call it anything but race. Mm. Right? And... Um, and so That's there, a real sociological term. It is. <laughs> it is. There's a, a famous paper by Eduardo Benilla Silva that uses that as a title. Um, and um, but I, so you've already got my whole point here, which is we should be thinking about the employers, right? So when we most of the way that we come at this, however, is from data that's about individuals, mm -hmm. right? And so on the academic side or the policy side. Um, and that always leads you to ask a question about what's wrong with these people, mm -hmm. right? And so the, I think really the, the question we should be asking is what's wrong with these firms? Um, so that you mm -hmm. all got that already, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and um, I want to take a little bit of an exception to the idea that the seed was planted 75 years ago. Because right? I bet you none of those hospitals are using the same technologies they were using 75 years ago. Absolutely none not. of those hospitals have the same divisions of labor between workers that they had 75 years ago. They have adapted their business plan continually over this period. Right? So if a firm says race is hard, um, ask the same firm if they think productivity or product innovation is hard. Mm. Right? It's about what is the... On, on the table um, when the people in the C-suite are evaluating what's progress and what's not. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's um, I want you, uh, this is the thing I think is most important. Um, if we continue um, to speak about this as individuals um, need another pile of this or another ounce of that, 
mm -hmm. um, or even neighborhoods, mm -hmm. right? Um, then, uh, then the people with the power um, aren't being held accountable. Right. Um, so I'm going to give those three, what I see as three points of intervention here um, that are possible. And so one of the ones we've already talked about is these peak employers. Right? So employers do care not only about their bottom line, but about their reputation. They don't like to be ranked low. Right? And, um, uh, and so that's a point of intervention with the private sector. They're being ranked for return on investment all the time, right? CEOs, um, uh, part of the giant increase in earnings inequality in this country is CEOs got to link their pay to return on investment, right? And then they changed all of their strategies to maximize that number, right? Um, so, there, so there is those peak employers in your communities who both are easier to shame and produce um, a kind of a leadership role for the other employers. Another is, um, um, is your state and local governments. And this is the part that really baffles me, how they get off the hook, right? So one of the things, uh, so if we go back to the 1980s, um, state and local governments in general um, had very low inequality between their black and white employees. And what we've seen over the last 30 years is the state and local governments now look a lot like private sector employers. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they um, adopted all the strategies that the private sector employers had. Um, decentralized power to local managers to make decisions about hiring, firing, promotion, um, pay raises. Outsourced all sorts of work. So lots of work that had been being done by minority communities gets outsourced to low wage private sector firms. Right? And so um, our state and local governments did this for us in order to save our taxes or whatever, right? Um, but it was extraordinarily racially destructive, right? And, so, and then there, there's a third group, which I don't know, you have to sort of get through the state and local governments, but those are the people who are the kind of the primary contractors to state and local governments. So if you can mobilize it in a kind of conventional political way, then you've got to carry on to those contractors, which includes all those low-wage employers that they've outsourced um, uh, black and brown labor to. Um, so I'd say that. And, um, and then I also, there's a, something I didn't get to say before, which I want to throw in here, because, uh, um, which is about kind of rising inequality. Um, so right now, the rising inequality story, uh, earnings and income inequality story in the US is a little bit disconnected from the race story. Yep. Um, um, but when we say there's rising inequality, what we mean is that there's a polarization of pay associated with jobs, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, um, in some ways, if the we well, so over the last thirty years, black uh, black especially education has converged with white, even though the wages have been stagnant. Well, that's partly because the jobs are pulling apart, right? And it's also, and, and this is an important part. It gets back to the subcontracting idea. Um, most of the rising inequality in the earnings inequality in the United States over the last 30 years has been produced by the polarization between firms. It's the high wage firms, the finance sector firms, your Prudential in Newark. Um, um, Don't the, get Ryan in trouble. Yeah, it's not his fault. Um, the, the tech industry, those, th those firms becoming really, really both profitable and high wage even as they outsource all the, all the work, right? 
Half of you probably got a box from Amazon in the last two weeks. It was never touched by an Amazon employee. It was touched by a black or brown worker mm -hmm. subcontracted in their warehouses. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you, because so, I think that's actually a really important point yeah. is to connect the rising inequality with the race conversation. So appreciate that. So Ryan and Deborah, I'm going to ask you to be quick and really punchy. Brief. Sorry. Because we're running out of time. And sure. I want to make sure we get at least one round yeah. of questions. Um, so they're going to model for you how to be quick and punchy. Um, so what is to be done? Yeah, I mean, I love Dorian's frame, this chaos or community frame. And I think that we bend our uh, neighborhoods toward community at the local level. Mm -hmm. And so this, I've talked a lot about Newark and New Jersey's urban cities, but this is really, I think, an issue that cuts across all uh, cities in the country. And I think it really is a local moment. So I think there's a lot mm -hmm. to be done to organize mm -hmm. folks who are doing this work, including employer partners who will sit down at a table and think about how to create a system that is designed to connect local residents, particularly of color, to, uh, to work in their city. And you can take a look at the back of the uh, report that I brought with me that's available on the table that outlines a way to do that. The second thing very quickly is around policy. So city governments are governed by local bodies. They have the ability to legislate around uh, first source ordinances, around residency requirements, around minimum wage. That's often something that city, the city governments can do. And it, if it's not city government, you can build a groundswell of support to move to a state legislature. So a lot, I think a lot of what we have available to us at this moment is to organize locally so that local elected officials, state level officials can't ignore what we're pushing for around these and other issues. Really appreciate that, Deborah. So three things. One, um, as you look at um, the executive suite, as you look at employers, please know that uh, reputation does mean a great mm. deal to us. It mm. drives how loyal patients and consumers come to us as you make decisions. So um, many of our companies are on the Fortune 100 best companies to work for, Forbes in diversity. Uh, we are number one for diversity MBA for women and people of color in management. So with all those awards and recognition came work, came advancement. Is there still work to do? Absolutely. So reputation means the world to us because it is about how we advance the business. Two, um, please know, child of the 60s, Head Start uh, was an important component of educating young people with the family and how to understand the academic system. In many of our communities, our public schools have become segregated again. Mm -hmm. And so please let us think about when you're talking about the seed and the fruit, and I'm not giving that up, Don. Okay. Uh, the, yeah, I've thought about it a long time. You've thought about it for two minutes. <laughs> what creates the workforce, how they were educated, how they learned as a community. Our public schools are an asset. And so as, uh, and please know that I value charter schools and I value private schools. I value education. But for the community mm. we're talking mm. about, public schools are probably their access point to education, and I need you to care about them. Mm -hmm. So the next point for me is uh, very similar to what Tanya's saying. Who are you, and who's in the room, and what are you going to do? So at Carolina's healthcare system, uh, what I've learned is teammates are very loyal. They love working with our patients. 
their families, the community. They're very proudful about their work. We call it CHS Proud. And uh, so we branded a diversity and inclusion certificate program with Carolina's healthcare system. It is 80 hours of work that uh, the curriculum was developed by um, our own teammates. Uh, it was done in a multicultural fashion. We have many champions that are diverse, white, African-American, male, female, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, that want to create this workforce community of excellence. And uh, we call it a privilege when we're able to care for you. And we want you to be the decision maker in your care, and we want you to choose us. So uh, what I would say to you is anybody could do a leadership certificate Anyone could do a diversity and inclusion certificate and certify that people have gone through the education. Now, you're going to tell me, Deborah, the majority of the time people who do that are interested anyway. Guess what? I still want them. <laughs> I still want them to be the ambassador and the spokesperson and the people who talk about culture. So in the workforce, I have you your best waking hours of the day. I value that. So as an employer, as a C-suite person, Please know I value every single teammate. When I said quick and punchy, I didn't know you were going to take me seriously on the punchy part. Punchy. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so we have like five minutes for questions. So um, 30 seconds, let's take a few, and there's someone with a microphone. So the staff um, will, yep, find some, yep, on each side. Yep. 30 seconds, seriously. <laughs> Gender, That's excellent and great modeling. So we're putting age and age discrimination on the table. Let's take one from over here and then we'll take a Twitter question. Yep. Hi, good afternoon. So I'm with the National League of Cities, and so a lot of talk about local. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually piloting a project right now, six cities that are bringing together cities, city um, mayor's offices, mm -hmm. higher ed, K through 12, mm -hmm. and um, workforce and economic development. A lot of chambers of commerce are actually yeah. part of our teams. So I just wanted to know from each of your perspectives, if you wanted to put one topic on an agenda um, with those three sectors there, what would it be? So I'm kind of trying to jump outside of my bubble to make sure we're covering all our bases. Fantastic, thank you. We're gonna have, we're gonna take one from Twitter. Question? question from Twitter is, uh, can you talk about whether apprenticeships could help break down some of those social network um, inequalities? Apprenticeships, let's take one more. Right up here, we'll take two more. Okay, maybe, maybe three, because you guys are doing very well. So here, here, and then here, because you guys are being very succinct, and I appreciate it. So my name is Cassandra, and um, I'm with the CORE Network, but I was born and raised on St. Croix in the Virgin Islands, and uh, U.S. territories are historically left out of every single conversation, and the Virgin Islands specifically has the highest rate of African-American individuals in the country, but it also has the highest crime rates, poverty, unemployment, illiteracy. So I was wondering how what you are speaking about and aiming for can be driven down to the local level in the U.S. colonies. Oh, great question. All right, right here. 
Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, I wanted to hear more about something else that I don't hear about, which is the black middle class mm -hmm. who are not urban dwellers. Mm -hmm. I'm from Indiana. Um, and who are business owners. And I think this touches upon, this is a gap that could address a lot of what was raised um, today in terms of local context, um, social capital, you know, expanding our networks, et cetera, and picking up on where Dr. Martin Luther King left off 50 years ago, I think Gen Xers and like myself and millennials are pushing forward to move that economic vision forward. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. My name's Raina, thank you. Thank you, last but not least right here. Looking uh, longer term, uh, what can we do to stop the pushback against progress that shows up at the end of the Civil War with the abolition of the 14th and 15th Amendments, at the end of the Civil Rights Movement with the resegregation of our schools? Um, you know, there are people who get to office by saying, I'm going to Philadelphia, Mississippi, and I'm for states' rights, or I'm going to attack every black person I can find. Uh, what do we do about that? <laughs> okay, um, so I'm going to sum these up. <laughs> Watch this. Because they're, they're going to have to answer all six questions in one minute each. So here are the six topics. I'm going to start with you, Tanya, work our way down. So uh, we have the question of age and age discrimination. We have the question about what should be on a city's agenda to advance everything we've talked about in terms of employment equity by race, by gender, by age. Third is, what's the role of apprenticeships in this conversation? Fourth, how do we think about the U.S. territories and colonies, whether it's the Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico, in this moment especially? Fifth is, what's the role of the black middle class and black businesses in this conversation in terms of creating social capital? Um, how do we think about, because we haven't talked about black businesses. And then last but not least, the unsteady march question, two steps forward, one step back. Um, so you have a minute each to address any of those six topics. Go. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so first I would just say that, that we wholeheartedly agree about the, the training for the sake of training and training people who are there just no jobs, right? And so we are very supportive of apprenticeship programs, but we will not in, get ourselves involved um, in any apprenticeship program if we have not identified jobs. And as right. I mentioned mm -hmm. with the 1400 campaign, right, we now see that we have to go even further than that to really get in writing, just like you would uh, any other type of contract, the types of jobs that um, our members will receive. We support apprenticeship programs, but these programs have to be associated and attached to a particular job. Um, in terms of how the black middle class can get involved, um, one of the things, not the black middle class, but I wanted to say, one of the things that that we hear people saying is how can I get involved, right? When you see the marching and the protests and the demonstrations, right? That's not for everyone, but people still want to do something. And I think in this moment, we're all called to act. And so the one thing that I would want to lift up is is leadership development and, and mentoring and coaching one another. That's something that we all can do. The other thing that I would say about the black middle classes, and I touched on it briefly when I talked about who our members are, is that we are seeing black middle class membership increase within our rank and file. We are seeing mm -hmm. union membership increase within our rank and file. And that's because the issue of racism is not being discussed. We were, um, were in conversation with um, people in the film industry in LA who are having nooses put on their work stations in LA right now. When people think about nooses, they tend to think about the South and they tend to think about the 60s. Mm. And so that's still going on. And what we have to do is, is realize that 
These are not just issues that people are facing if they are unemployed, underemployed, uneducated, right? Mm -hmm. We really have to call out the fact that racism mm -hmm. and discrimination is key in everything that's going on. I would say to, to um, people um, in the Virgin Islands elsewhere, one of the things that we are having success with is looking at our history, looking at what was successful, and, and modeling and recreating those structures. Thank you, Tanya. Don. So um, first, um, an apology from um, all the social scientists. Um, age discrimination, what happens in the um, U.S. colonies and what happens to Native Americans is almost yep. never studied. Yep. Um, um, we have a new Center for Employment Equity. We have all of the discrimination complaints that the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission receives um, every year, and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. And one thing we can do is, for age discrimination complaints, talk about how it intersects with other characteristics at the individual level and with particular employer behaviors. Um, uh, so if you want to help us do that, we would love that. Um, second, the black middle class. I uh, came here in a lift today. Uh, my driver's name was Corey. Hmm. Um, so Corey is driving for Lyft and Uber, so he's an independent contractor, self-employed. But he really wanted to tell me about his um, bread delivery route. So he works for a bread company, and he bought a route. So he pays the bread company some thousands of dollars to get the route, right? And in return, he is treated exactly like an employee, except he has to pay for his truck, hmm. right? And when he pays off his truck, there's an amendment to his contract that says there's a residual fee before you get to own the truck, hmm. right? Hmm. So when I talked before about Amazon or the subcontracting at the government, right? So this is a black middle class man. Um, and his father in the same job would have been an employee, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful. Right? And then the last thing, two steps forward, one step back, is just a plea for a current politics. One of the things that happened under the Obama administration that was really, really wonky and potentially powerful was that the EEOC was going to start collecting pay data from firms. Yep. Right? In 1961, it became illegal to pay people um, a different wage um, in the same job. And the federal government has never had the capacity to ask if that's happening or not, mm. right? And so there's now an active pol politics out of the Trump administration um, to stop that from happening. Um, so um, here's a high horse you can get on. <laughs> Great. I just, I, I loved your question which sort of situates us in the space that we are now. And the reality is I think American history and our experiment with democracy has always been a contested one that's been characterized by periods of expansion, almost always swiftly followed by attempts to constrict the democracy. And so I think on the other side of a twice-elected black president, the first black attorney general, the first black female attorney general, uh, more black electeds in the country than ever before, more Latino electeds than ever before, you would expect us, consistent with our history, to be right where we are today. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that we, during I think the eight years that Obama was in office, not folks in the room, but folks outside the room mainly, were somewhat lulled to sleep around what race really means and how it really constrains opportunities. And now folks are awake. And I think this is all cons also consistent with how change happens. And so I think for us, it has to be that we're willing to fight. That we're willing to organize locally around issues of economic justice, around expanding democracy. And it has to happen 
in our local communities. I do just want to say a quick word about black businesses. There's a, a related piece to the higher effort, which is around procurement. And so there are a lot of um, companies, if we're just looking at the local procurement in the city of Newark, for example, uh, the major corporations spend about 3% of their procurement budget in the city of Newark, which is, I'll do bad at math, but I guess it means 97% of the, <laughs> of the budget of, for procurement is spent out elsewhere. And there's also, I mean, I, I would imagine, I don't have the data, but I would imagine if you looked at the corporations working with minority-owned or black-owned businesses, it's also very low. And so I think there's an opportunity for the hiring piece to be followed by for the procurement piece to, to tag along to the, to the hiring as an important component. Age discrimination is part of our daily conversation as part of the workforce. Uh, people are delaying retirement, especially when they are in lower pay paying jobs because we have not allowed them to accumulate the kind of wealth they need for retirement. Over time, with baby boomers where they are today, this can be a concern for our American workforce and for all of our firms, as uh, Don calls us. So um, we are seeing highly productive older workers staying engaged in work. Mm. Your question may be around access to new jobs, and uh, this is something we absolutely need to study. The African-American middle class struggles with um, access, especially as small business owners, um, as we are looking at large corporations such as healthcare and education and higher ed with our supplier diversity programs as we try to interact with diverse suppliers. We have gotten better. We are nowhere where we need to be uh, because we are not creating equity, we are creating access. So I understand the tension of that struggle. The plenty of money uh, I, you receive a percentage of it, not the whole pie. So much of our conversation today is dealt around what we perceive as limited resources. And so let us always think about how limited resources make us act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have been engaged in a political conversation that has been built on the, built on the fundamental principle that there are limited resources and some are getting more, and some are getting too many, and some are getting less. And um, as we started with the Martin Luther King quote, uh, and as you two have designed the framework of this conversation, I have just become familiar uh, with uh, one of his quotes I didn't know about. Uh, this summer I read Jody Peacock, uh, Picot's book, Small Great Things. Hmm. I got 75, and it is about racism and social media and um, the healthcare workforce. It's very interesting. Um, but about 75% uh, into the book, three quarters into the book, there was this quote, and it was from Martin Luther King. And what it said is, we can't all do great things, but we can all do small great things. Hmm. And so as we talk about leadership in this room, please never feel that your voice doesn't matter. Your voice matters every single day, whether you're advocating for your own child or someone else's, whether you're advocating for someone needs health care or whether you need health care. 
whether you are advocating for the person who is paying a fee, a tax, let's, let's just call it what it is, to be employed, to have the truck so they're not part of the employment. So each one of these small things accumulates, and this is where we are. So you're either satisfied with the status quo or you're not. So, wow. Um, so we started about 10 minutes late. We're going to end about 10 minutes late, which means we're ending on time. Uh, just for the record. I like the way you count. Uh, so I, just to close us out, so I learned at least three things. I learned a new definition of black ice. I learned a different conceptualization of seeds of the fruit. Mm-hmm. related to racial inequality. And I learned that we can all do small, great things. Oh, I so I really appreciate nice. that. Um, this is the beginning of a conversation. I would encourage you to follow these fine folks on Twitter to continue the conversation. And I want to thank Maureen from Aspen, the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program, as well as Steve Patrick from the Community Solutions Forum. Um, but I want all of you to join me in thanking Deborah, Ryan, Don, and Tanya for an incredible conversation. Well done. Thank you. Thank you all. I want to just make uh, two quick announcements. Um, One is, uh, please come back. Uh, November 17th, we'll be talking about the future of work in retail. And two, next year, we'll have new digs. So please come join us at 2300 N Street next year. And I hope you got our card on that. And again, a huge thanks to this amazing panel.